John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This right here, this verse captures our very purpose. It's the reason why your heart is beating at this moment. It's the reason why there is breath in your lungs. We exist to behold him. It says to see his glory. We have seen his glory as of the Father. We exist to see and to savor the glory of the incarnate Son of God. Let's be very clear. For us to have the absolute privilege of being able to recognize it, to have our spiritual eyes open, to have our blindness healed, the fact that we can even with our eyes of faith see his glory as of the Father is an act of of grace, it is a miracle because no human left in their own ability would have the sight to recognize the stunning glory of Jesus. It says in John 1, 16, two verses after that, for from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. So the Spirit of God is hovering And he's at work in opening people's eyes so that we can then see his glory. And when we see it, it is grace, it is miraculous, and we're not the same. We're completely changed when we encounter Jesus. Last week when we began this series, we looked at the prologue of John, John 1, verses 1 through 18. And we saw how the Bible reveals that Jesus is the word, he is the light and the life. And Jesus is in the process of recreating a new humanity with new hearts, with a new nature, with a desire where we want to worship Jesus and we want to walk in the light instead of walking in the darkness. And we saw in our home groups this week the 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 rest of chapter 1, and if you miss your home group, I'm really sorry, you're missing out. You want to be in a home group so that you can get the full meal of the gospel of John. In our home groups last week, we studied the second half of chapter 1, and we, we saw how Jesus is proclaimed to be the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that he is the King and he is the Son of God. And so everything in chapter 1 is just crying out, see Jesus clearly, see him for who he is. And in John 1.38, Jesus asks a penetrating question. Jesus asks, what are you seeking? What are you looking for? And that question, if you will stop and just meditate on that question, what are you actually looking for? When you log on to check your investments again that day, what are you looking for? When you you log on and look at something that you know you should not be looking at, what are you actually looking for? When you are thinking about launching a career or a lot of you that are going to graduate from college, what is it that you're actually looking for from life? What is your heart seeking? May we be like Philip that we'll see later in the Gospel of John who cries out, show me your glory. That is what our hearts crave and that is what we're truly hungry for, and when you go online and you're looking for stuff that you shouldn't be looking at, the truth is that what you're looking for is actually God. You're not looking for that filth. You're not. Your heart is hungry and desires something. What you actually desire is Jesus. You were made by him and for him. So may we be hungry for him and to have his glory manifested. May we seek 
Jesus. And if you are new to checking out Renewal Church, you need to know something about this church. Um, the sermons aren't short, but you're going to find the people that are hungry for God. And if your soul is hungry for God, then you're at the right place. If you're looking for Jesus, because today we're, think, we're, we're considering the sermon is titled Encountering Manifested Glory. So when we encounter Jesus, we're actually encountering glory that has been manifested, displayed, or, or shown. Because if we're really honest, what in this life actually matters more than the glory of Jesus? What else, what else are you going to go to? What else are you going to turn to? Where else are you going to find hope or joy or purpose? It's empty. So let's read about this manifested glory. And you'll see in verse 11 why I, I titled the sermon the way that I did. John chapter 2, picking where we left off in our, in our groups this last week. John 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the beast tasted the water, now become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory. There's, there's that phrase. He did the sign and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. There is nothing random or new. In John 2. Like you just need to know that here up front. There is nothing in John 2 that is novel or new to the Bible. When he says in verse 11 here that this is the first sign that Jesus did, this is the first of seven. We'll look at that. We talked about that last week that John 1 through John 12, that, that section in John is organized around seven signs. These are seven miraculous signs that point to Jesus as Messiah and as God in the flesh. So this is the very first sign. It's a miraculous sign that reveals who Jesus is. This is why it says that it manifests. So to manifest means to display. Or what has been hidden is now made known and open for others to see. And so what I'm saying is there is nothing new here because everything in John 2 is rooted in the Old Testament and it's all been pointing to Jesus and now you simply have the fulfillment of that here with this first miraculous sign. And so it echoes all of the great themes of the Bible that began in Genesis 1 with creation that are carried all the way through Revelation with the end of time and the consummation of God's purpose. And so as we jump into this text, let's pray. And let's get our hearts before God right and just ask his spirit to do what only he can do, which is to reveal to us the glory of Jesus. Oh, God, we need you. 
Many of us in this room have come here brokenhearted or heavy-hearted. Life has been unkind or hard or painful or disappointing. And we praise you that you are close to the brokenhearted. And you have a purpose for us in the pain to manifest your glory. And others of us have come to this worship gathering with doubts or with confusion and uncertainty. I pray that your spirit would create an awareness of your presence here in this place, that you would open our eyes and that you would bring assurance and confidence and hope. Others of us came here today and we're empty. It's been a draining week and we just feel spent or exhausted emotionally. I pray that you would fill your people with your goodness, with awareness of your presence. We have all come here for one purpose, and that is to see you exalted, King Jesus, and to see your glory manifested. And having your glory grip our hearts is what we're hungry for. We're hungry for you. And so may you speak and grip our hearts, and may we leave this place with our, our affections gripped by you with a resolve to follow you in community and bring your renewal to Bill County and the world. And so, Spirit, you do what only you can do. And we pray in your name, Jesus, for the sake of your kingdom. Amen. Love this text. Jesus is manifesting his glory through this miraculous Sign. We're going to look at three specific ways from this text of how exactly Jesus is manifesting his glory by changing water into wine at this wedding in the small town of Cana. So number one, Jesus manifests his glory, one, by exposing our hearts. He is exposing, he is revealing our hearts for what they actually are. We can be deceived, but Jesus is at work in revealing, or here we're saying exposing our hearts. So why do I say that? Let's dig in and see. Verses 1, 2, and 3. It says, on the third day. We'll come back to that. That sounds kind of important to me when it says the third day. So mental note on your observations from the text. That's how the text begins. Now, in the immediate context, you see this is after chapter 1, where Jesus has met Nathanael. Now, we're going to find out later in the Gospel of John, in chapter 21, that Nathanael is from Cana. So, this is actually Nathanael's hometown. And so, he meets Nathanael, and now he's following him. And so, they go to Nathanael's hometown, to Cana. And this, we would assume, is the third day after the events of the end of chapter 1. And Jesus is invited with his disciples to this wedding where also his mother Mary had been invited. Now, there are some significant details that we should not miss as make observations from this text. One, it says that it was a small village in Cana. Cana was in Galilee. That was to the north. Cana was not an impressive city. It was a small, insignificant village. No great commerce. There was no great ruler. There was no coliseum. There were no colonnades. It was a very simple, rural, backwoods village. Kind of like whenever I moved back here from Abu Dhabi, and if you know the UAE, if you've ever even heard of it, there's like Lamborghinis and Ferraris, and it's, it's real, like it actually exists. And, and the speed limits are like 90 like on the highway, that's the normal speed limit. And you can go beyond that and this one give you a ticket. So you're driving in your car and there can be a Lambo come up next to you going like 100, flashing his lights, and it's just crazy. And so you learn to drive kind of fast. It's just normal. You have to or you'll get killed. So we moved back here three years ago and I was driving up to Waco, kind of the back way up 317. And I forget which town, now I don't want to name it, but it was one of those small towns and, 
and I was driving what I thought was normal speed, which is around 45 or so, and then a cop pulled me over. And I'm like, what? What's the problem? And he was like, sir, you're speeding. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah, you're speeding. You're supposed to go 35. And I was like, why? He was like, you're in the town. And I almost said it, but it didn't. I thought, oh, I must have blinked. I was like, this is the town? Really? This is the town? Yes, sir, this is the town. You have to slow your speed, okay? One of those kinds of towns, one of those kinds of insignificant towns that if you blink, you will miss it. People actually live there, believe it or not. And that was Cana. Small, insignificant blink if you miss it, or you'll miss it if you blink, I should say. Not important. But Jesus chose to do his very first miracle there. One of those towns. And then he does it at a wedding. Also significant. One notes that. He's doing this miracle at a wedding. And there's a feast. And there's wine. These are all observations from this text that you need to be noting because these are all significant details. We can't just read the Bible casually. Oh, yeah, I already know that one. You probably don't. You probably need to reread the Bible with, with paying really close attention to all of the details. Weddings. Let's, let's start there for a second. In the ancient world, weddings were a massive ordeal. Like not, I mean, I know they're big here too. It's like a two or three or a long one, a four-hour event, right? If there's like a meal or a dance afterwards, it can last for a few hours. No, 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 no. In the ancient Israel, a wedding lasted for a week. It was a seven-day party. No, no, it was a party, not a party. And it was very expensive because you invited the whole village, and when you were the master of the feast, you were in charge of what the bridegroom and his family had to pay for all the food and all the wine for the whole week. And if you had guests that came to your wedding feast, and if it's day six out of seven, and you ran out of lamb or you ran out of wine, it was major shame. Like, we just can't even, in the West, like today in Texas, we can't get our minds around this. It's not Western. It's Middle Eastern, ancient culture, but I even saw that living in the Middle East where you would go to a big villa and it would be covered in lights. Like I'm talking like shrouded in like Christmas lights, but just all white lights because someone was getting married. And even in the Middle East today, these parties last for a week. So it's, it still exists today. It's just not like that in the U.S. And so you had this party, and if you didn't have enough food or drink for all your guests, a guest had the legal right, get this, this is historical account. You could actually file a lawsuit. You could sue the groom for not providing adequate food and drink for the seven days for all of the guests. So you had a legal obligation, a social obligation. This is big, like massive blowout celebration. So it says in verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother said to Jesus, they have no wine. Oh, no. This is huge. That family will never live down that shame. Their whole marriage will be like, that's the couple that ran out of wine. That's the couple that shamed themselves by not providing enough wine for the whole party. Like, this is massive. Their resources were depleted. And we don't know why. Like, was it because there were more guests than expected? Was it because they didn't have enough money? I, the text doesn't say why. But here's what we do know. The resources of that couple had run we're running on empty, completely depleted. Now, in the ancient world here in Jewish thought, why was wine at a wedding feast so important? Like, why? Like, why is that? Like, yes, 
maybe we understand that it was a big deal, but why, in Jewish thought, why was having wine at a wedding such a significant thing that would be such a cause for social shame? Well, because, remember, Jewish thought was influenced by the Bible, by the Jewish scriptures. We call it the Old Testament. It really shaped their thinking and their culture and their world view. And so in the Old Testament, wine is a picture of blessings and joy. So whenever you read about wine flowing in the Old Testament, it's always about blessings. It is, if you want one word, it's abundance. Wine is a picture of abundant blessing. You see examples of that. You can look at them in your own time. Psalm 104, verse 15 also, Proverbs 3.10 are a couple of examples of where it describes um, wine as a symbol of joy and of God's abundant blessings. You can also look at um, um, Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 12. That is a prophecy that is given by Jacob, who is not going to live much longer, and he gives this prophetic word for all of his 12 sons who will become the 12 tribes of Israel. And the fourth-born son named Judah was promised that out of Judah would one day come the Messiah, who would be the ruler, and all of God's people would worship this ruler from the tribe of Judah. Of course, you know, that points to Jesus, who is the line of the tribe of Judah. Jesus came from that lineage. And, and so what you see in this prophecy in Genesis 49, it describes that there will be wine flowing freely when this Messiah is ruling. And there's going to be so much blessing with God's people that a picture of that is wine flowing and not running out. Another example of that is in the prophets. Repeatedly in the Old Testament prophets, you see a picture of the Messianic banquet, the messianic age of the Messiah coming is marked by blessings and celebration and joy, and wine is always connected with that. I'll give you one example of that in Amos chapter 9, again, Old Testament prophet. Amos 9, verses 13 and 14, it says that the mountains shall drip sweet wine. You hear that? Whole mountains are going to be dripping with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. There's this picture of wine saturating mountains and wine literally flowing, not rivers, rivers of wine flowing down from the mountains is the imagery. And it's in verse 14, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And so what you see in the Old Testament is a very consistent message. It's saying the Messiah will come in victory. He will defeat the enemy and all evil, and his people will be gathered together, and they're going to celebrate, and this celebration and this feasting will include drinking, drinking sweet wine with celebration. And so God's promise of the Messiah is the promise of freedom and of abundance. So get this. The coming of Messiah is the coming of abundant blessings. And the symbol of this joy is wine. So there was a problem at this wedding. They had run out of wine. That was their problem. Maybe today you're thinking, well, my problem isn't that I've run out of wine at a party. My problem is financial. Or my problem is my marriage. Or my problem is sexual in nature. Or my problem is my health. And so sickness. Or maybe you think, no, my problem today is that I'm struggling with this addiction, this habit that is overcoming me, and I'm tired of it, but I can't find freedom. 
Maybe your problem is a sense of confusion or lack of clarity of what to do next with a decision in your life. Maybe your problem is fear. Maybe your problem is deep pain and disappointment today, and you're here, but your heart is just broken into a thousand little pieces, and you're wondering, how is it possible that I'm going to pick up these shattered pieces of my life and somehow piece them together to make something useful and beautiful and valuable again? I don't know where you're at, but Jesus knows. And you may have problems that are at the forefront of your mind today. But Jesus is looking at something much deeper than just the surface problem that we could identify. Just like the problem that day in Cana was the wine ran out. But Jesus was looking at something much deeper. Back to the point here. He is exposing our hearts and revealing the real problem. There was a saying, interesting, in the first century among the rabbis, without wine, there is no joy. And that saying among the rabbis came from this Old Testament understanding of wine being symbolic of God's flowing, abundant joy and blessings in the coming of Messiah. So when the Bible records Mary going to Jesus and saying, the wine has run out, God is sending us a message and says, look deeper to what the wine symbolizes. The joy has run out. Jesus was looking much deeper and going to the heart of the issue beyond the surface. And so John 2 is showing us that Jesus exposes our hearts and says, look at the real problem. The real problem in our hearts is the fact that we like idols. It's idolatry that will give our hearts to different things under the sun. And we look to the things that God has created to satisfy our hearts. So many of us, and I mentioned this last week, which was my struggle, is sometimes looking to Washington, D.C., for hope or deliverance. Honestly, last week and this coming week to me is very loud and clear. There is no hope in Washington. Our hope is in Jesus. And he has to change hearts so that Washington can change. Because if we're honest, Austin's not a whole lot better than Washington. I'm just saying, slightly better, not much. Our hope is in Jesus, the Messiah of God, the Word of God, the life and the light. He is our hope. He is our security, our hope is not in kingdoms of this world. It is in kingdom of heaven. Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world. And honestly, look, if things have to get bad in this country so that people will come back to Jesus, then so be it. If it has to get so bad in this country that that's what it takes for the gospel to flourish, then so be it. If it means things get bad so that we have churches that are actually pure and that are not playing games, that it's something real and authentic and it's the gospel and this transformation, then so be it. Look, I've lived in a Muslim country. I've seen what it looks like to have a pure church. And I'm telling you, the American church needs purifying. This is the reality of what we're seeing, is he's saying when the wine runs out, it's your joy has run out. Your resources are depleted. Where else are you going to turn? The wine points to the coming of the Messiah, of Jesus, and his joy. But instead, we look to Washington, or we look to, I don't know, alcohol, or we look to sports or social media or video games 
or binging Netflix. And we do all of these things to just numb the pain. Hey, we all do it. We all have our ways that we cope or that we just kind of get through the day or get through the week, the little pick-me-up. I mean, for you, honestly, it's not even that. It's just sugar. It's 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and you just got to have your whatever sugar pick-me-up. And it's like, do you really need that sugar pick-me-up, or should you turn to prayer? Because that's what fasting does. Anyways, it exposes our need. And it, it reveals to us the fact that, man, we're hungry for Jesus as much as our bodies are hungry for food. We can turn to any number of things, but the reality is anything that we would turn to is going to leave you empty, just like those jars that day at the wedding were empty. He's exposing the real Issues, the heart issues in our heart. With our own depleted strength, our own depleted resources. And Jesus is declaring, I have come to bring life in abundance. Joy in abundance. We'll get to this later in the Gospel of John, but John 10, verse 10, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it meagerly, right? I came that you would have life and barely make it. I came that you would have life and just have a bare minimum existence, right? No, he says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Abundantly. That's the picture of what wine is. The Messiah will come and bring life in abundance, overflowing. Like David said, my cup overflows. His abundance, his presence, his joy, not what this world offers. So he exposes our hearts. It's saying, look, stop turning to things of this world. Turn to me. Showing our desperate need for the presence of Jesus himself. And so what we're seeing here is manifesting his glory by one, by exposing our hearts. Number two, doing it by purifying our hearts. I was alluding to that with the church needing to be purified. But here's where I'm getting that from, verses 4 and 5. We just read it. Let's reread that here briefly. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, I know, <laughs> funny, to a 21st century audience, you read Jesus saying, woman, um, now, actually, I do that in jest with my wife, and I'll say, woman, um, she loves it. <laughs> no, actually, she doesn't. But in Spanish, mujer is woman. It means wife, so, you know, whatever. Um, but Jesus calls her woman. Now, I know for our ears today, it sounds like he was being a jerk. That's saying, woman? And it's like, whoa, I thought Jesus never sinned. Oh, how is he being so rude or being a jerk to his own mom? Well, in the context, it, it, it's not as bad in Greek as it sounds to us in English in our 21st century, um, just the way our ears have been accustomed to language, right? So Jesus was not disrespecting her. Now, in the original, it is like, like calling her ma'am or lady. And so it's like a, a general, formal but polite way of addressing a woman. So if you meet someone and say, yes, ma'am, or, or she's a lady, like that's not rude. It's a respectful, polite, very general or generic way to describe a woman, but it's not disrespectful. It still begs the question, well, why did Jesus address her as ma'am or as lady instead of as mom? Because he could have said mom, but he didn't. Why? The text doesn't say, but here's my observations of studying it. Here's, here's what I believe. I believe that he was communicating to his mother, making a statement. I know that biologically I'm your son. I was born from you, but I was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And the way that I relate to you, mom, is really not as your son. I relate to you primarily as Messiah and as 
God in the flesh. And even you, ma'am, have no authority over me. He was in a loving way reminding her of her place. Which is a human being who is desperate for him. And the true wine that only he can bring. And her response to him on do whatever he says, it, it could sound to us like she was just like a typical, I've seen it, I'm married to a wife, we have four kids, and you can get so like, oh, exasperated on, I can't even, just whatever, just do it. Like, like that's what it might feel like, but that's not, that's not the tone in the original. What you see here is she recognizes her place, and she says, hey, servants, whatever Jesus says, you do it. She's recognizing his authority, recognizing he is Messiah, that he's going to bring the kingdom of God, and whatever Jesus chooses to do is the will of God. And she's recognizing her position as, yes, his mother, but more importantly, a sinner who needs to be saved by him, and he has the authority, and he is God in the flesh. And if you don't think so, go back to Luke chapter 1 and read what Mary says after she knows she'll give birth to Jesus. She sings about him being Messiah. She knows as best as she can who Jesus is. And so she is submitting to his authority and saying whatever he says. And I think first that's an important place for us to be. When we have circumstances that are hard or beyond our control or painful or disappointing, like Mary, to say whatever Jesus says. Jesus, whatever you choose to do, I trust you. I love you and your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I think that this reading makes most sense when you read the very next verse in verse 5, where Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. What does that mean, my hour has not yet come? Well, that's a theme that we're going to look at throughout the whole Gospel of John. It's a repeated phrase over and over and over. The religious leaders hate Jesus and want to kill him, but the text says over and over and over, but they couldn't, not because Jesus was too quick, not because Jesus was too sly and kept getting away from them. It says over and over and over, and they couldn't because it was not yet his hour. So an example of that is in John chapter 7, verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Jesus was sovereign. No one took his life. He laid his life down for the sheep. Even on the cross... No one took his life. Jesus gave his spirit. Complete control, complete sovereignty to his last breath. And then, of course, with his resurrection. Now, so in John, you see this over and over on his time was not yet. But then there's a shift in chapters 13 through 17. The seven signs are done. Now you get to the second half of the book. And now Jesus talks about how his hour had finally come. And beginning with chapter 13, this is the very night that Jesus was arrested. He would be crucified the very next morning. So Jesus says, my hour is now here, the very night that he would be arrested. So, for example, John 17, verse 1, Jesus is praying for his disciples. After dinner, after implementing communion for the church, Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. So now it has come. The hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And then two chapters later, chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus cries out two powerful words. Well, three, but two in the original, but three in English. It is finished. The hour has come. 
It is finished. Mission accomplished. He fulfilled what he came to do. The hour of his death had come. Salvation is accomplished. The Lamb of God taking away the sin of the world. The good shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. The bread of life being given so that his people would live. The eternal word, light, and life had come into this world for his purpose, and his time had finally come. So when he's talking to his mother about his time, he's pointing to his death and resurrection. Verses 6 and 7. Now, there were six stone water jars there. Now, these are not random jars. It says there were these jars. It says, for what? For the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. So again, reading the details matters. So these jars were very specific. Large stones made out of rock jars that held about 30 gallons each. Now, what is this purification? Well, if you go back to Exodus chapter 30 in the law, it describes how Moses revealed in the law given by God that the ceremonial washing as part of the sacrificial system. And so it was pointing to the fact that God's people needed to be cleansed, needed washing, that we are corrupted and polluted, and that what we need is to be purified. And so this Washing with the water was symbolic of what would happen with the coming of Messiah who would actually cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Just like you see in Titus 3.5, Jesus saved us according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so the work of the Holy Spirit and regenerating, bringing us from death to life and renewing us, make, so this renewal of God is pictured with a washing. And so this is where if you begin to understand the context, it gets really good because Jesus was effectively saying to these servants, you see those jars over there that are for purification? Yeah, you won't need those anymore. Because it is finished, and I have fulfilled everything that that was pointing to in purifying a people, people that are washed with my own blood, pictured by the wine. And so this wine was a foretaste of the real gospel wine that flowed freely the cross, the wine that abundantly provides for our greatest need. And that is what communion is a picture of. The cup is a picture of the blood that was shed for you and for me. And the bread is a picture of the body that was broken for you and me. And are we surprised that these jars are made of rock? Like, is that surprising that there's stone jars? Think back to Exodus 17. God's people were in the wilderness and had no water. What did God do? He brought water out of a rock. Jesus is saying, I am the final and better Moses. I am the final and better rock that provides living water. And Jesus is bringing us something greater than even water. He is bringing forth wine that is a picture of the messianic age of Jesus has come, and it points to his finished work on the cross. This is remarkable when you begin to understand the context. It's pointing to our redemption. And so, are your resources depleted, your moral resources? 
Are you trying to be a good person? Are your religious resources deplete? Are we trying to justify ourselves by going to worship gatherings, by serving, by reading the Bible, by putting money in the offering buckets? But are we trying to justify ourselves by good works, by being a good religious person in your efforts? If I were to guess, if you've been trying that today, you find yourself exhausted. Are you tired? Let Jesus purify you. He wants to expose your heart, and then he wants to purify your heart. He has power that religion cannot do. He has the power to give you a new heart because of his work on the cross and give you grace upon grace and change your heart where you will then have the power through his spirit to live that life that he's calling you to live. So we're seeing he's exposing our hearts and he's purifying our hearts. Lastly, He's showing his glory by satisfying our hearts. Now, we read in verses 9 and 10 that it was 20 to 30 gallons of wine. That is insane. Like, if you stop and think, 30, not bottles, 30 gallons of wine times 6, 180 gallons of wine translates into about a 1,000 bottles of wine. And so Jesus could have so easily said, hey, take this one jar and fill it with water. And that would have been more than enough to finish up the party. But Jesus doesn't give them just enough. He gives an abundance. And he saves the best for last. I would wager the best wine ever made was in those six jars. Maybe today you're thinking to yourself, man, God is just like barely providing or giving me just enough. I encourage you to open your eyes and see. Jesus is bringing you an abundance, not just eking by. And you think, Pastor, you don't know what life has been like. It has been miserable. Look, I can't promise you health or wealth. The Bible doesn't guarantee you health or wealth. The Bible does promise you the presence of God. The Bible does promise you that he's going to bring good. And what is the ultimate good that he brings to conform you to the image of the so God is at work even in our pain and bringing an abundance of his mercy and true wine and true joy that brings true satisfaction. And I love verse 11. It says that he was manifesting his glory by doing this miraculous sign. There's the story of redemption. It began in Genesis with what? A wedding. Throughout the Old Testament, if you keep reading it, you will see over and over that Israel is described as the wife of God and that Israel has been unfaithful to God. And if you look in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and 32, it describes that he's going to bring a new covenant through the Messiah. But it says, the context there, it says in verse 31, that he has been a husband to his people. And his people have violated the covenant. And so even the coming of Jesus is in the context of a marriage. And how we have broken the covenant. Is it a surprise in Ephesians 5 that marriage is described as a reflection of the love that Jesus has for the church? That marriage is all about displaying the glory of God. And then at the very end in Revelation 19, we have a feast, not a random feast. It is a marriage feast of the Lamb. And so beginning to end and everything in it, you see God moving to bring his people together to be intimate with them, and marriage is a profound 
picture of it. So I know our marriages on this side of heaven are broken and flawed and sometimes end. And yet what we look to is the ultimate fulfillment of marriage in all of our hopes is being with Jesus. And like it says, Matthew 26, that we would drink of the fruit of the vine together. We would drink of this gospel wine. We would drink of his goodness, his wine flowing freely for eternity. Like it says in Psalm 16, in God's presence, there is fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus is manifesting his glory by, yes, exposing our hearts, and yes, by purifying our hearts through the cross. But he's satisfying our hearts with himself. I love how this story begins. On the third day, you know, it was the third day that he planted or that he created plants. What was needed to make grapes, to make wine, it was on the third day where he created plants. And it was on the third day when God provided a ram instead of Isaac being sacrificed. It was on the third day that God showed up at Mount Sinai and revealed himself and became essentially married to God's people. It's described as, as a wedding. On the third day, Jonah was delivered from darkness, from the whale, the fish, and spit onto dry land. On the third day, Jesus rose victoriously from the grave and crushed the head of the serpent, defeated all evil, and has, and has created a new people that trust him. It's all on the third day. So this is a theme that you see in the Bible and is designed to cause us to just be in awe of who God is. The wedding and the wine are a foreshadowing of the consummation of the end of all time when we will enjoy the messianic banquet, when we will finally be one with God. We will be right there with Jesus in person and worship him. And he's providing an abundance. We are a blood-bought people. May our lives reflect this.